Good morning, ladies. <laughs> Good morning, teacher. I got called Mrs. Keish yesterday by one elementary schooler. Like, it's not Keish. It's not Mrs. Keish. Uh, anyway, I trust that your community day, reflection week, whatever I heard from some of your leaders, that it went well and you enjoyed uh, bonding with one another and having sister time uh, with each other. And so I'm happy for that. Uh, as we move forward now uh, into the latter part of chapter two, do you have any questions? Nobody has questions, really? <laughs> Diane, nothing? Okay. Okay, well then let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for today and for your word and uh, for being back together again as a large group and um, just love you and praise you and thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ, um, for the many blessings that we have received, that we have been made alive in Christ and that we've been brought near to you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't mind music. I like music. <laughs> but it could end up distracting me, especially if I particularly like the song. I have to be careful when I'm driving, and I do, I actually listen to specific songs as I drive to church on a Tuesday morning that just kind of center me, but I have to be really careful because you just driving like this doesn't work very well in rush hour on the interstate, so, but that's what I want to do. Uh, well, let's, I, I want, I know you guys actually spent a week reviewing and talking about uh, chapters one and the first part of chapter two again, but I just want to do a real quick review um, of the first chapter and a half. I know the first thing it says there is the first three chapters, which we haven't gotten to yet, but the first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily theology. Uh, there is application in there, but the content is primarily about who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, the blessings we have because of what Christ has done for us, talking about all of those sort of theological things. And then in chapter 4, he's going to make a turn and begin talking primarily about application. Uh, so although there are points of application in the first three chapters, it is primarily theological. Um, and chapter 1, uh, much of chapter 1, is just praise to God for all of the blessings that are ours, ours, in Christ. That God chose us. That he predestined us. That he adopted us. That he has granted us grace and redemption and forgiveness. And that he's given us the Holy Spirit as both a seal that we belong to him and as, as a deposit guaranteeing our future with him, our eternity with him. And then Paul tells us in chapter one that God has made known his plan for us, his plan in Christ. And that plan is to bring all things in heaven. What's going on? We got music, we got, I think that's like an ice maker over there going, amen, Amy. His plan is to bring all things together in Christ, all things in heaven, and he talked about the powers all being subjugated to Christ, and all things on earth, under Christ, under one head, even Christ. And then the, the rest of chapter one is this prayer for the saints, the prayer 
for believers, which is marvelous. And he prays that they might know God better, that they might know, that they might understand all that God has done for them in Christ. And then finally, he prays that they might know God's mighty power, the power that is so powerful that it raised Christ from the dead. That same power, Paul wants us to know, is available to us. And then we started chapter 2. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, he begins with a formerly now contrast. You were formerly formerly this. You used to be this, but you are now this. And he says, but as for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he talks about that for a while. And then he says, but, but because of his great love for us, God made you alive in Christ. Formerly, you were dead in your sins. But now, now God has made you alive in Christ. He has done this solely because of his mercy and his love. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Um, Our salvation is from first to last on account of God's grace. Paul calls calls it the incomparable riches of his grace. But we've been saved for a purpose. Remember, right after that beautiful passage in 8 and 9 about by grace you have been saved, he says, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've been created for a purpose, and that purpose is to live a life that honors God, that obeys God, that does what God has called us to do. Well, now in the rest of chapter 2, Paul will continue to contrast who the Ephesians once were uh, without Christ and who they are now in Christ, as well as what the the list of blessings that we have in Christ will also continue, that description of the blessings we have in Christ. But then he's going to take it a step farther and he's going to begin to flesh out the implication of this change, these changes and these blessings for the church for the body of believers uh, as a whole. So the first thing he's going to tell them is, you have been brought near. You were far away, but now you've been brought near. In verses 11 through 13, he says, therefore. Now remember when you see therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. And I actually didn't put it in my notes, so I decided I better tell you what it's there for. Therefore, since all these blessings are yours, yours in Christ, therefore, since you have been, you were dead, you were dead. You could do nothing to save yourself, but God raised you to life. Because of that, therefore, remember. Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the first thing Paul tells them to do is to remember. This is the only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And the only command is to remember. To remember who they were before Christ. Before Christ... Because they were Gentiles by birth, 
not Jews, but Gentiles by birth, they were uncircumcised. That was a pejorative. That was like a name-calling thing. You know, like, that's my, one of my favorite camp stories. There's identical twins, eight years old. Identical twins, Abby and Gabby. You, oh, I shouldn't say that. It's going out online. Shoot. Sammy and Dammy. <laughs> I don't know about that. Sammy and Whammy. I don't know what. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just getting worse. Two identical twins. And they start, they're in a cabin together. They start having an argument with each other. And one of them turns to the other one and goes, yeah, well, you're ugly. <laughs> Sweetie, you look just like her. <laughs> and you're both beautiful. It was a pejorative like that, uncircumcised, stupid. We're circumcised. You're uncircumcised. It was a pejorative. It was a name-calling thing. You who were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision. We'll get to that in a minute. They were separate from Christ. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were foreigners to God's covenants. They were without hope and without God in this world. That's pretty bleak. But, love that word, but, there's something else that they need to remember. And the, something else they need to remember is that they have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Paul is calling them not, to ju not just to remember who they once were, not just to remember their former plight, but also their current status in Christ, their current privilege in Christ, which only serves to magnify all that God has done on their and on our behalf. Now, he says in the flesh here, and, and it's hidden a little bit uh, in the English, the Greek word is ensarki, and Paul uses this term a lot, and he actually uses it three times in the passage we're going to talk about today. The first two times uh, are here, therefore remember formerly you who are called Gentiles by birth, uh, by birth is in the flesh, you who are Gentiles in the flesh, it's ensarki. And then where it says, which is done in the body by human hands, which is done in the flesh, same word. Uh, and then we'll get to uh, the third time it's used in a, in a little bit here. But so both times he's saying this word in the flesh, and in Paul's writings, that term can have a lot of meanings. But here, in this case, Paul is saying that they lived merely in the human realm. They existed only in the human realm. They did not, they were not part of the greater spiritual reality uh, that is God's reality that exists, what Paul has called in the heavenly realms. They were not in the heavenly realms. They were only in the flesh. Their problem, therefore, was that they were only in the flesh. Hang on to that thought because we're going to come uh, back to that. But now this is a bleak, a bleak situation. But Paul tells us here, at least implicitly, that the Jews were no better off. In fact, I told you that a better translation where it says, for, by those uh, who call themselves the circumcision, by those who are so-called the circumcision, which is kind of pejorative just like it would be today, you know, so-called rich and famous, you know, or whatever. And so that's, that's also kind of saying, um, you know, they call themselves the circumcision, they have no right to. Uh, but further, he says, uh, that which is done in the body, in the flesh, by human hands. They, too, were in the flesh. 
Their circumcision was of no value to them. They were no better off because their circumcision was merely in the flesh. It was just something done by human hands. It was not part of the greater spiritual reality. Throughout the Old Testament, and I had you read a number of these verses last week, throughout the Old Testament, God over and over tells Israel, true circumcision, circumcision that matters, is circumcision of the heart. It is a change. Outward circumcision is just a reflection of the inward change of heart that has occurred. And so if you're just circumcised physically, that means nothing. It's not too different than baptism. If baptism is not a reflection of, is not motivated by, is not accompanied with a life-changing, God-breathing faith, then it means nothing. If baptism isn't something magical, it's an outward expression of an inward reality that has already taken place. And so their circumcision was merely in the flesh. It was not something that had been done by God. It was not something that placed them in the heavenly realms. And so therefore, they were no better off. So in summary, Paul is saying that the Gentiles were separate from Christ. Now you might think, okay, yeah, they were separate from Christ. They were Gentiles. But weren't unbelieving Jews also separate from Christ? They didn't know Jesus either. Yes, they didn't know Jesus until, unless they became believers. But they had the hope of Messiah. The hope of Messiah was given to the Jews. And so the Gentiles not only were separate from Christ, they were separate from the hope of Messiah. And that's what Christ means. They were not the ones to whom the promise had been given. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel, which is further proof that they were alienated from God's people and outside of the covenant uh, relationship that they had with him. Because of that, they also had no share in his covenantal promises. They were outside the covenant. Therefore, they had no share in those promises. They had no hope. They could not escape this plight. They had no hope of ever escaping that plight. There was nothing they could do to change it. And they did not have God. The sphere in which they lived was isolated from God and what he was doing. But God had a solution. And it says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah, how wonderful is that? Their plight was estrangement and distance. Therefore, the solution was nearness and belonging. And this was done for us in Christ, through his blood on the cross. We could not do it for ourselves. God had to do it. The illustration I always use is the parent of a two-year-old never says, tie your shoe, come on, we got to go. Now it's all Velcro. But you never do that. No, you reach down, because a two-year-old can't. I'm tying, I'm forever tying the shoes of kindergarten, first, and fifth graders sometimes, actually, at school. And I never, when they come up to me and say, will you tie my shoe? I never say, no, sit down, tie it for yourself. They can't, or they would. We could not do it for ourselves. God had to do it for us. And this was his plan from the beginning. Dr. Klein Snodgrass says, in sum, the human plight is caused by separation from God. Life comes from him and is to be enjoyed in his presence. 
The only solution to the plight then is proximity to God, and Christ is the one who takes us there. You know, this, this one command, I think that Paul was intentional on that, this one command in the first three chapters to remember is an important one. Remembering is important. Remembering connects us to God. I get this. My dad had Alzheimer's, and he, when he forgot his entire life, he looked at my mother one day and said, one of us needs to get a job. And my mom was like, well, sweetie, no, I'm, we're, this, you are my job. I take care of you. And and she, then she said, sweetie, do you, do you not remember that you were in the Air Force and that you were, and he didn't remember. And she said, don't worry, sweetie, you made a good living, we're fine. He didn't remember who he was. This remembering is very important, it connects us to God. And when we remember who we once were, that should cause us to have great gratitude. That should cause praise to well up in our hearts. I am no longer the sad, sullen, angry, rebellious, unhappy woman I once was. I have people tell me all the time, you couldn't have been that bad. Even my mom once said, oh, sweetie, you weren't that bad. That's because they forget. Just like we forget childbirth, they forget the teenage years once we're out of them. I was that bad. I used to, when I give my testimony, show a movie at me at 16. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, I was an it. I wasn't a thing. I once gave my parents a, a card that said, thank you for not running away from home when I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> because I was, I was so sullen. And if you, the, the teenage eye roll, I invented it. I had it down. I was not, I am not that young woman. I am a new creation in Christ. The past is gone. Christ defines me now. And when I remember who that young girl was, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, because he is the one that affected that, that change. And he is the one, simply because he loved me, he drew me, he brought me near to himself through the blood of Jesus. But it's also important to remember who we are now, because we can get stuck in that who we were and say, I'm never going to be any different from that. I'm never going to change. And that self-talk is defeating and destructive. It's important to remember that we are no longer estranged from God, that we are now near to him, that we belong to him. Christ is our identity. Our sin does not define us. Jesus Christ defines us. Our relationship with him defines us. And when we remember that, it helps us to live out who we are in Christ. Paul forever was, was giving people, and he's going to do it in Ephesians too, telling people who they were in Christ. And then he says, therefore, and then he tells them what to do because of that. And essentially, he's going to do this in Ephesians. Essentially, what he's saying is, look, this is what Christ has done for you. This is who you are in Christ. Therefore, become who you are. Because this has already been won for you. This has already been done for you. Don't live in that former way anymore. That's not who you are. This is who you are. Become who you are. And remembering helps us to do that. And then he, now he's going to tell us about the peace that has been won for us. Not just vertical peace with God, but horizontal peace with other believers. 
For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to God the Father by one spirit. So that he himself is our peace is an English way of explaining um, the Greek which is able to show emphasis. And so if, he could, if we could listen to what Paul is saying, he's saying this, he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the one that makes possible both our reconciliation with God and our reconciliation with other believers, with each other. We can experience this peace, however, only in Christ. Only in Him. Now, this concept of peace is very rich particularly in Old Testament theology, but also in the New Testament. And I'm sure you've heard the Jewish word shalom, which is even a greeting um, in Judaism. And that's the word peace. The, the Greek word that Paul uses is this word Irene or Irene, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But in the Old Testament, it would be translated shalom. And it is a rich uh, word that gives a picture of wholeness especially in relationships, and it gives a picture of security and well-being uh, that only God can give. It is much more than the absence of conflict. Uh, it is a gift from God, and it can only be enjoyed in him, that no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. It, it's true. It is only in Christ. It is only by God's presence that we can know true peace. Shalom is the way life was meant to be lived. It is a life lived with God. That's how we have shalom. I heard a, a preacher, don't even know who, but years ago, say that, that peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God. That is how we know peace. But our lives are, are often far from peaceful, aren't they? We tend to live our lives at a, at a frenetic pace, at a, at a sort of a life-sucking uh, pace. Uh, Lisa Morgan talked about feeling like a juice box when her kids were little and just, you know, this has just been sucked dry. And I, I think sometimes even when our kids aren't little, we tend to live our lives at that pace, that frenetic pace. But Paul is telling us, in a sense, to appropriate what is already ours in Christ. He is our peace. He already is our peace. Become who you are. Live out what has already been given to you. That is true. Jesus is our peace no matter what our schedule says. If we rest in him. St. Augustine in his book Confessions, which I read in college and I, I would highly recommend it. He said this. He said, um, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And this rest has already been won for us in Christ. He is our peace. And that is God's will for our lives to live in that. So then he begins to talk about this horizontal peace, this peace we have that Jesus Christ destroyed the barrier between the two. Well, who are the two? The two are Jews and Gentiles. 
He destroyed the barrier that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. But then what was the barrier? Well, some theologians will tell you that the barrier was um, the fence that was between, in the temple, that was between the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court, and, and the, the next court which only Jews could go into. And it was true that in Jerusalem, in the temple, there were signs posted all over that fence. And they said, basically they said, Gentiles, get out, stay out, no, go no further, no tras- trespassing by Gentiles, Jews only. Uh, and it was a barrier. It was definitely a barrier. And if you want to read a fascinating story about that, look in Acts where Paul was accused of taking Gentiles past that barrier. And, and it is possible that was a barrier erected between Jews and Gentiles. It is possible that's part of what Paul means. But I don't think so. I don't think that's what he solely means because he's writing to Gentiles living in what is now Turkey, far away from the temple. And so I don't know that that would... Um, that that would commute to Ephesus. I don't know that that would make sense for them, that they would really be aware of what, what do you mean there's an outer court of the Gentiles? I didn't know that. So I'm not sure that that would make sense to them. More likely, this is supposed to be taken together with, um, by setting aside the, the, in, in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. The barrier was the law. The law itself was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. The law separated Jews and Gentiles, um, both religiously and sociologically. And it caused Jews to think they were better than Gentiles, and it caused Gentiles to hate Jews for it because they looked down on anyone who wasn't Jewish. And so that barrier... um, caused a deep-seated enmity between Jews and Gentiles. So then, in what sense did Jesus abolish the law? Well, that word abolish means to set aside or to make ineffective. So what Jesus made ineffective, what Jesus set aside was the ceremonial law as opposed to the moral law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments, which is what Paul calls the law of Christ, which we do because we love God, because we are saved, not in order to get saved. That's a discussion for another day. The ceremonial law were all those rules and regulations, the dietary laws, the sacrifices, and those sorts of things that came to an end with Christ because he was the full and final sacrifice. No other sacrifice for our sins is needed. We no longer have to keep those laws. Jesus fulfilled them. He set them aside. He made them of no effect um, because of what he did on the cross. And in, uh, Paul tells us that not just this in Ephesians, but in Galatians he makes it very clear because there were certain Christians, Jewish Christians, that said, you want to know Jesus and you're a Gentile? Great. Basically you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Get yourself circumcised, keep the dietary laws, make your sacrifices. And Paul's like, no, what do you mean? That's done. The Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to be Christian. And that's essentially what he's saying here. That that has been set aside. That barrier between Jews and Gentiles has been broken. It's been done away with. Paul will will have no law that will bring um, separation between Christians. 
if it's dietary laws, sacrificial laws, whatever they are, he, will, he says he makes it clear that Jews and Gentiles are all followers of Christ and they are on equal footing. There is no separation between us. And any practice that would exclude Gentiles is not of God. It's been set aside. So where did the destruction of this barrier take place? It took place in Christ's flesh, in Ensarchy, in his flesh. It is the same term. Remember, the source of the problem was in the flesh. Therefore, the solution, the reconciliation, is also found in the flesh, in his flesh, in Christ's flesh on the cross. One theologian says, Jesus took the hostility both Jews and Gentiles, into himself, and when he died, it died. That uh, hostility between them. The result is that now we are one entirely new people. We are an entirely new creation of people. We are one with our brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ. Dr. Snodgrass says, Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection identified with and represented humanity. People are incorporated into him. And when he was raised to new life, a new being came into existence. One in which people are one with Christ and one with each other in him. Grace not only connects us to God and Christ, it connects us to each other. Uh, but then we also have a vertical piece. Not only do we have this horizontal piece, we have a vertical piece. And, and Paul talks about that in verses 16 and eight, through 18. He says, and in one body, the body of Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So through Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Both Jews and Gentiles needed that reconciliation. It wasn't just the Gentiles that needed that reconciliation. And God is always the initiator of that reconciliation. We bring nothing to the table. And so in Christ, we are both reconciled to God. But what does it mean when it says that he came and preached peace? to those who are near and those who are far away. Well, the near and far away are easy, both to Jew and to Gentile. He preached peace. But in what sense did Jesus preach peace? Well, I will tell you, the first thing he said to his disciples after he rose was, peace be with you. And so in that sense, he did. And maybe after his resurrection, it's talking about the teaching he did then. But more theologians believe that that actually means he preached peace through the Spirit, through the apostles, through their teaching, like Paul's teaching here, that Jesus did that by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And then he says this wonderful thing that because of all this, we have access to God. Now, that's not just meaning that we have access, unhindered access to the God of the universe as individuals. As cool as that is, and that's true, and it's cool, but he's saying more to that. He's saying together, as one humanity, both Jew and Gentile, we can stand together in God's presence. And one day, we will. 
every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship together before the throne. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. I love that. And then in verses 19 through 22, he's going to talk about how the, the people of God are the temple of God. Consequently, because we have been reconciled both to God and to each other, uh, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the consequence of this reconciliation, the consequence of our being reconciled both to God and to each other is a dramatic change of status, particularly for the Gentile. We were once strangers and foreigners. We are now fellow citizens. We've been granted amnesty, as it were. We are fellow citizens. We were once far from God. We are now members of his family. We are his children. We are at home with God. The first picture that came to my mind uh, is literally a picture that many of you have probably seen of President John Kennedy in, in the Oval Office at his desk. And underneath his desk is hiding little John John, who's actually just about my age. He had access to the Oval Office because he was the president's son. I doubt that any president allows too many people to sit under their desk. <laughs> and if someone's under there that they don't know about, it's going to be bad for them. But John John, anytime. Because he was a member of the household. He, he was at home in that household. But to be a member of God's household in, in ancient times, in ancient Jewish times, meant more than just that. It, it meant to have identity and security, and it meant belonging. To be a member of a household meant refuge. It meant safety. It meant protection. And all of that is ours because we've been reconciled to God. That's what we have as members of God's household. And then he talks about the foundation of this building built on the apostles and prophets. What's he talking about there? Well, the apostles would have been the disciples, minus Judas, and probably including Matthias, who took Judas's place, but it would also include Paul, and maybe, and James, uh, not the James of Peter, James, and John, but the James that was the half-brother of John that wrote the book of John. He was considered an apostle, a huge leader in the early church, and maybe one or two others, maybe Apollos, maybe Barnabas, you don't need to know any of that, but, but it was this, this select group of people who had been called by God and had been given the revelation of Christ to tell others. Uh, and, and so that would be the foundation. The prophets would not be Old Testament prophets. It's not Isaiah and Jeremiah. It would be those teachers that were original um, bringers of that message of God as well. So if Apollos wasn't considered an apostle, he certainly would have been considered a prophet. Uh, in the early church. Those were the original um, message bringers of the church, and so therefore they consisted of the foundation. But the building was not built on them. The church was not built on them. 
It was built on the cornerstone, and the cornerstone was Jesus Christ. Now, back in this day, a cornerstone wasn't some little ceremonial stone that had a date stamped on it. The cornerstone determined the entire line of the building. It determined everything about the building. Everything else, including the rest of the foundation, was built on that cornerstone. The church, Paul is telling us, is built on Christ. It is supported by Christ. Everything about it is determined by Christ. He is the cornerstone. So what are the characteristics of this new building, the church? What are its characteristics? Well, we are joined together in this building. We are joined to each other, in other words. We are also joined both individually and corporately to Christ. So both as individuals and as a church, we have been joined to Christ. And this is an ongoing activity. This is, this is in the present tense. So we are continually being joined to Christ and joined to one another. Paul also tells us this building is holy. And that word, as you remember, means to be set apart. It has been set apart by God and for God. That's what it means to be holy. But he goes on and says more than that. He says that God's people are his temple. Consider the wonder of this. The ones who were formerly excluded from the temple have now become the temple. They are the temple. The temple in the tabernacle first and then the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence resided on earth. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul tells us that we are individuals, we are the temple of God by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But here Paul tells us we are also corporately God's temple, the place where he dwells on earth. Not just Brookside, not just Avery, not just whatever church you go to, but the universal church, the body of Christ in all places on earth. So we are not only members of God's household, um, as wonderful as that is, but we are also God's temple. We are set apart. We are holy. We are set apart by and for God, both as individuals and as a corporate body of believers. Well, that's the teaching, and, and I headed the application part, um, We Are Family, partly because I love that song. Uh, and the reason I love that song, and, and these people over here already know this, is because of these women. I have three sisters. And I understand that my identity is in Christ, but part of, a big part of who I am is being the second of these four women. And uh, this is us, and we are forever trying to figure out ways to have our picture taken without um, certain body parts being shown, like chins and hips. And so this was one of our attempts, and, and the youngest of us, Missy, who's a good deal younger, as you can tell, um, decided that she would try to look sexy and put her, her leg up on the piano. And isn't, isn't she cute? She's so cute. This was the result when she tried to get her leg down. <laughs> she found that even at her young age of 40, I think, when this picture was taken, uh, it was a little easier to get the leg up than it was to get the leg down. I've got to tell you, I, I, there's no way for me to exaggerate my love for these women. 
We are bound to one another in the deepest sense. I have, I have often told people that, and it's not a regret, because it's nothing that I had any power over, but I am so sad that my daughter doesn't have a sister, because I get sisters. I understand the importance of that. I'm praying already that she will be close to her sisters-in-law. Uh, yeah, sisters-in-law. Um, hopefully they'll both get married to nice women. Um, <laughs> I understand this. These women are my sisters in every sense. They are my sisters by birth. They are my sisters by blood. They are my sisters in Christ. And I love them dearly. And I would have told you even apart from this that I understand and I believe that you are all my sisters in Christ. But the truth of that became so much more real to me because of these women. These women, I call this my Where's Waldo picture. These women are pastor's wives in rural Zambia. And in terms of the way we live and the way our cultures work and our socioeconomic status, we could not be more different. But I've had the pleasure, I've had the privilege of walking alongside these women three different times and, and the awesome, humbling privilege of teaching women God's word, women who could teach me and have taught me so much more than I could ever teach you. And at some point during my, this is my third trip to Zambia, at some point during my first trip to Zambia, I forgot I was white. I forgot that I was, I thought I looked just like them. I thought they looked just like me. I forgot that I was American. I forgot that there were any differences. Do you know why? Because we're one in Christ. We are sisters. Of these women, the one on the far right, this way, in the back, that's Marjorie. That's Marjorie Malambo, one of the women I respect most on this earth. I could go on for days, but we don't have the time, of the respect I have for this godly, godly woman. And she served as my translator on this trip. And I was talking about this very thing that we're one in Christ and I pulled her up close to me and I put my arm around her and I said, this, this is my sister. This is my sister in the truest sense. I am bound to her in Christ. I'm not an American. She's not a Zambian. I'm not white. She's not black. We're sisters in Christ. That's the truth of who we are. That's how God designed it. And if that's not how we live, if that's not the picture we have, then we're the ones that need to change. Because this, this is God's design. I guess I, I try to go back. There we go. This is God's design. All of us together, every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping before the throne. Just a little plug. If that's not true in your life, any mission trip to a foreign country will blow your socks off and help you catch that vision. Whatever the barriers are, whether they're here in the United States or whether they're worldwide, whatever barriers exist within the church ought not be there. Social barriers, gender barriers, socioeconomic bar barriers, racial barriers are, have been destroyed on the cross of Christ. We must live, we must live out what has already been won for us on the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ at great cost to him and to God. Those barriers have been defeated. We are one in Christ. Christ has already accomplished it. 
the church must become what it already is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that through your Son, at great cost to you, you destroyed any dividing wall. Father, I would pray for the sister in here who realized that she is not reconciled to a sister or brother in Christ. Father, I would pray that you would grant her the grace to become reconciled because we are one in Christ. I think of Abraham's words to his nephew where he said, let there not be enmity between you and me for we are brothers. We are sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. May we live out that truth that we've been reconciled both to you and to one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. See you next week.